Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, believe, or walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Walk, tell you walk, Daniel. Don't believe us, Daniel. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special, stoical episode of Finneran's Wake. I'm joined today by the esteemed Brittany Polat, a writer and researcher on the philosophy of Stoicism, from whom, I can assure you, we're all destined to learn a lot. A scholar whose interests extend across a variety of fields, Brittany obtained a doctorate degree in applied linguistics, a course of study about which in due time I do intend to ask her, before focusing her attention, her work, and as we might soon discover, no small part of her life to Stoicism. Brittany is the founder of Stoicare, a volunteer-run 501c3 that promotes, you guessed it, Stoicism as a philosophy of care and well-being for the improvement of one's life. She is a board member of the Stoic Fellowship, a committee member for Modern Stoicism, and the author of two fine books, Tranquility Parenting and Journal Like a Stoic, about which, at some depth, we'll be talking today. Her other writings, with which I strongly encourage you to spend some time, can be found on her website, Living in Agreement, to which I'll include a link in the show notes below. Brittany, thank you so very much for agreeing to join me today. Thank you for the invitation. I'm looking forward to our talk. I think it's going to be fantastic. Um, first, I want you and our audience today to accompany me on a journey back in time. Are you willing to take me up on this offer? Sure. Are we going back to ancient Greece by any chance? You guessed it. We <laughs> are. So punch your ticket, hop on board. And let's go back to Athens, Greece, uh, toward the close of the third century BC. Alexander the Great's conquest of the Mediterranean world is, by this point, complete. The Hellenistic period, of which his premature death in 323 BC marks the beginning, is well underway. Greek culture, art, and most importantly, philosophy is spreading all throughout the empire. Among the four philosophical schools from which one could choose in his course of study were Platonism, Peripateticism, or Aristotelianism, Epicureanism, and Stoicism. Now, Platonism was, uh, as you may have guessed, the philosophy of Plato. Peripateticism of the Peripatetics, those who walked or followed in the wake of Aristotle, Epicureanism of those who followed Epicurus, and Stoicism of those who turned to Zeno of Citium for their moral instruction. Now, Brittany, imagine you're something of a college recruiter in that ancient time. You're set up on a busy corner in the streets of Athens trying to sell Stoicism, trying to gather some recruits. To someone totally unacquainted with the school of thought, how would you go about describing it? I would say the same thing then that I would say now, which is if you want to be truly happy, then stoicism is the philosophy for you. 
all the other philosophies may approach happiness. They have a different way of looking at the world and they say that happiness can be found in this way or that way, you know, through Aristotle said, if you have a certain amount of health or wealth, you can find happiness. Virtue is great too, but it, on its own, it's not enough. Only Stoicism says that virtue is necessary and sufficient for happiness. So same thing back then, people are looking for ways to be happy and we do that by flourishing. We do that through wisdom, justice, courage, and self-control, the same then as now. And, and it still works, that's the wonderful thing. Human psychology hasn't changed that much, so it's still as effective today as it ever was. So you mentioned happiness as the, uh, to borrow a, a word that was later uh, as ascribed to it, as the ultimate good the summum bonum, as it might be called. Can you expand on that a little bit more? Why is happiness the ultimate good? Why is that the thing for which we all should be looking? Well, it's interesting because it wasn't so much couched as a should, as just a simple fact of life that we are all looking for happiness. So a lot of um, philosophy since David Hume has looked at the is-ought gap, they say, how can we derive morality from, you know, what, how can we derive what should be done from what is done? And so this has caused a lot of philosophical trouble in the past 300 years or so. But going all the way back to ancient Greece, it was a totally different question. It wasn't, you should act in a certain way so that you can be moral. It was, hey, this is human nature. If you want to be happy, and they assume that everyone does, this is the way to do it. So it's not a should, it's a it's a statement of um, value. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the thought was that happiness was valued above all else. Mm -hmm. So let's take another philosopher or another philosophy uh, uh, to which Stoicism is often flattering in a flattering way uh, compared, and that's Epicureanism. So Epicureanism, of course, is named for Epicurus, who was the, the founder and the promulgator of that philosophy, which had a lot of purchase in that, uh, in that age and in, in a different way, in a perhaps decadent way, in this age as well, in which we're currently living. Um, very basically, Epicureanism stood for the, uh, the pursuit of happiness in a more sensual way in a more immediate way, the immediate gratification of desires. Why would that not be a more appealing philosophy to a young 20-something walking around the streets of Athens looking for a course of study and a tutor whom he might find in you, um, as opposed to Stoicism, which might call upon a little bit more austerity, a little bit more um, difficulty and uh, maybe a little bit more forbearance from those, uh, the satisfaction of your desires. Right. So quite a few people in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, which of course took over a lot of the ancient Greek philosophy, um, a lot of them were Epicureans. It was a very popular philosophy. And it's funny because Epictetus, whom I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit later, he was a very famous Stoic teacher and philosopher, and he actually ran his own Stoic school. So he was talking to the very people that, that we're talking to in this thought experiment, the young men, because it was always men, only men were allowed to study philosophy at this point, from well-to-do families throughout the Greek empire. 
So one day in class, he's telling them, you call yourself Stoics, you're not Stoics. Most of you are Aristotelians or Epicureans. And by that, he meant that they were living a softer life. They weren't fulfilling the Stoic ideals. They were kind of halfway there, which made them Epicureans or Aristotelians. We should specify, though, that Epicureanism, even though today it's kind of associated with sensual desire and food and this kind of thing, Epicurus, actually, his doctrine was quite different. It was all about pleasure versus pain. And today we tend to interpret pleasure, you know, as food and wild parties and this kind of thing. But Epicurus was um, Epicurus was actually quite ascetic by our standards. You know, he, he ate very simple meals. He took great pleasure in the friends that he gathered around him. So it was not at all how we would picture Epicureanism today. So it, it was a quite different development. Nevertheless, it was a great competitor to Stoicism, as was Aristotelianism, Platonism, these other schools. Um, but Stoicism was definitely considered one of the leading philosophies throughout the Greek and Roman empires. And for that reason, as we'll see later, I'm sure, the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius adopted Stoicism as well. Yes, it's one of those uh, unfortunate consequences of history uh, that a, a school that originally stood for quite noble ends like Epicureanism did uh, is corrupted and degenerated and, and contorted in its, in its meaning in the current day. And I find, and I was shocked to find this uh, upon reading Epicurus's work, that he exhibits some stoic features. There's, a, there's an intermingling almost between uh, the Stoic thought and the epic, what would become the Epicurean thought. And you're right, his emphasis was less on the accumulation of ever more pleasures, but the mitigation of pains. Uh, so that's, you know, those are two very, very different things. You can live a Stoic life by trying to reduce pains, but not really pursuing um, at least physical pleasures. So uh, for everyone listening, I, I highly encourage you to, to read Epicurus and maybe simultaneously read someone like Epictetus or uh, Marcus Aurelius. Uh, and you'll find that they aren't so um, ideologically, philosophically different. There is a lot of overlap. And I believe that Epictetus makes frequent reference to the Epicureans um, as he tries to... Um, establish his own philosophy and i would say that's more seneca yeah i'm sorry you, seneca uh -huh. yeah, if you read seneca's letters on ethics he does make quite frequent references to epicurus and he says well it's wisdom this wisdom is open for everyone me too if there's wisdom in his thoughts then i'm going to take them but i'm not going to take them you know without adding my own thoughts to it so yes absolutely there is overlap for example in overcoming the fear of death. This was something that Epicurus was quite pioneering in, and he offered a lot of strategies that the Stoics, particularly Seneca, later adopted. So absolutely, yes, the ancient schools all kind of interacted with each other. Yes, yes, and and thank you for that correction. Uh, Seneca was making uh, frequent reference to, to Epicurus and his philosophy, and it, I think it shows um, a certain modesty, an intellectual modesty, uh, acknowledging that perhaps you don't have all the answers and are willing to take a more syncretic approach to look at other philosophies from whom you can gather something, of course, uh, not to the exclusion of what it is that you have to offer. And it's important to note as well that, uh, you know, a lot of these philosophies, Epicureanism and Stoicism especially, 
and Aristotelianism spring from the thought of Socrates and spring from the pre-Socratics, uh, whom we can't overlook uh, as we talk about this. Do you want to make mention just briefly um, of Socrates? You can bypass if you wish. Yeah, sure. No, Socrates was essential in all of the later Greek philosophical schools. Many of them claimed to be inheritors of Socrates' legacy. And of course, they differed in the ways they did that. You know, the skeptics said that they were the inheritors of Socrates' legacy because they were questioning everything, but they took it much, much farther than Socrates. Um, the cynics also claimed to be following in Socrates' footsteps. The cynics, for your listeners, were people who were very unconventional <laughs> by the social standards of the time. They frequently lived out on the street, for example. They owned very few possessions. The most famous of them, Diogenes the Cynic, would harangue passersby saying, oh, you know, I'm looking for a good man. Have you seen one? He would walk through the streets of Athens in broad daylight holding a lantern saying, I'm looking for a good man. Where can I find one? And <laughs> he, he did lots of, you know, practical jokes and pranks on people just, just to get them out of their, to kind of shock them out of their complacency and out of thinking that they knew what they were talking about, much like Socrates. And, so, he's, yes, and he's often, yes, and he's often depicted as having lived in a, a barrel or a jar, right? He was he was thought to be so austere in his conduct that he didn't even have a house, he didn't even have a roof over his head, and he would he would beg for alms. You say that it was probably uh, extraordinary in that age. I'm not sure if you walk around some of our cities in this age, it would seem that, that extraordinary. You know, he was known to be uh, defecating in the streets and masturbating in front of uh, the audio of the people by whom he was surrounded, not to be too vulgar, but uh, yes, an extraordinary figure um, whose likeness might not be too uh, distant from us today, unfortunately. But uh, But yeah, you're absolutely right. All these schools um, claimed a, a lineage back to Socrates. And at that time, um, I wonder if that was, um, I wonder if that wasn't a somewhat dangerous uh, connection to draw. Because remember, it, only a few years ago, uh, Socrates was sentenced to death. He was ordered by the assembly to, uh, to take the hemlock for uh, two crimes into which we don't need to get. But it's interesting that all these philosophical schools were then um, sort of drawing inspiration from a man who was condemned by the state to death. Just an interesting aside. Uh, but no, you're absolutely right in saying that Socrates and Socratic thought is, is like the seed out of which this trunk grows and then they have all these branches. And Stoicism, I think, is one. And I, I think it's uh, worthwhile occasionally acknowledging uh, that lineage um, and going back to Socrates and emphasizing the importance of reading um, a thinker like him, or at least uh, reading his his great uh, student, Plato. So getting back to the Stoics specifically, uh, you mentioned a few. You mentioned Marcus Aurelius, you mentioned Epictetus, you mentioned Seneca. Uh, I want to start with Marcus Aurelius because I think his is the name with which most of us are familiar. Uh, we remember fondly his uh, brief presence in the celebrated film Gladiator, uh, of which Russell Crowe was the star. Um, there's a very popular persona on Instagram and Twitter who borrows his name, uh, the Aurelius name, and calls himself Carnivore Aurelius. Uh, I think it's safe to say then that 
Marcus's name has succeeded in gaining entry or gaining a foothold into the general cultural consciousness of today. But perhaps for those of us who are still only superficially acquainted with him, could you describe Marcus Aurelius a bit more? Certainly. Well, he was considered one of the five good emperors of the Roman Empire, meaning that he wasn't like Nero or Caligula, <laughs> fiddling while Rome burned or cutting people's heads off, things like this. And he's actually well known as a philosopher emperor, not only to us, but also in his own time. He was well known as a very serious figure who was um, very virtuous. And that is also reflected in his policies and the laws that he made, his interactions with his court and you know the the histories that have come down to us as well all report him to be this very noble and virtuous figure and he's best known i suppose you could say for his meditations which have come down to us in the form of um, it's quite easy to read it's a pretty short book but they are very remarkable because they express stoic philosophy in such a beautiful way and marcus wrote down these meditations just during his daily life we think that he might have been writing while he was on the battlefield um, or not on the battlefield, but camping beside the battlefield when he was at war. Um, he might have written some at court. He's constantly reflecting on, okay, be nice to all these people. They might be stabbing you in the back. They might be doing things that you don't want them to do, but this is part of your life as an emperor. So we really see him drawing on his stoic principles in his life as an emperor. So yes, absolutely a very remarkable figure. Do you think that he exemplified the platonic ideal of the philosopher king? Um, I don't think Marcus thought of himself as an ideal. We see him, we see a very human person in him. You know, he's struggling with the things that we all struggle with. And I think it's actually that, I think it's those struggles that endear him to people today. He's not presenting himself as some sage. He is constantly striving towards correcting his judgments or accepting what happens to him, all of these stoic ideas. So I think maybe we might see him as the pinnacle of the philosopher king today, looking back, you know, we can say, oh, he was the best emperor, but I don't think he saw himself that way. I think he saw himself as someone who was consistently trying to be virtuous, but maybe fell short of the mark. That's fascinating to me because I think it would have been very difficult to resist uh, the, the compulsion to to try to fit into that ideal mold. Ever since uh, Plato wrote his Republic and described this um, idealized figure, right? This uh, Solon type figure or this Periclean type figure, um, every ruler has tried in some way to embody that. And I think a lot of uh, political philosophers and a lot of general philosophers have, have tried to contort uh, the present ruler into that mold. Um, Frederick the Great, for instance, uh, I think in, in Prussia was thought to be the philosopher king, you know, exchanging letters with Voltaire and pursuing all sorts of different arts while also engaging in, 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 in violent wars. Um, so I can imagine there having been a lot of pressure on Marcus Aurelius to try to step into that role and to perhaps get a bit of a big head <laughs> as he did so in in becoming this idealized type. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the context in which he wrote his famous meditations. 
it's thought that he was basically in a constant state of war against the Germanic tribes on the northern part of the empire. Um, as he was writing these beautiful, deep, profound uh, reflections on what was happening. So maybe you can talk about the context and then maybe about the the incongruity between the two things, right? Engaging in these battles and these wars for either the expansion of or at least the preservation of an empire and the philosophical inquiry and the reflections of a man, a simple man um, in his downtime. Yeah, well, I think Marcus was doing what he had to do. I think that's kind of how I would describe his life. He wasn't the kind of emperor who raged, you know, raged out onto the battlefield, that kind of thing. He wasn't looking forward to war. He wasn't like Alexander the Great, you know, trying to go conquer people. Um, you get the feeling reading his correspondence and his meditations that he didn't like war at all, which would be fitting for a philosopher. So in that way, it's not necessarily incongruous. It's just he was doing what was called on of him. As the emperor at the time, he had to defend the empire's borders, for example, or he had to put down a rebellion led by one of his former friends. He was just doing what he had to do. <laughs> there are some passages in the meditations where he says, oh yeah, you know, I wish I could go have this countryside retreat, but no, I'm not gonna do that. I can have my retreat here, you know, wherever I am. So you see him kind of longing to just go settle down at a villa somewhere and read some books. But he wasn't allowed to do that. As emperor, he took his duties very, very seriously. So part of his part of what he's doing in the meditations is actually forcing himself to fulfill those duties as, you know, the the leader of the war effort and the person at court who is responsible for implementing justice and this kind of thing. So yeah, I think it's very special that we get to see that kind of inner conflict in him. I intended to raise this idea later on in the conversation, but it, it can't be helped. Uh, you mentioned uh, Marcus Aurelius's desire, um, and I think authentic and sincere desire to, to I don't want to use the word abandon uh, the battlefield, but to retreat back to a simplistic, more philosophical, um, thoughtful way of life. It always strikes me as reminiscent of uh, the feelings expressed by our first president, George Washington. He only very hesitatingly agreed <laughs> to, to uh, run for the presidency, right? To which he was elected unanimously in the late 18th century. And during the course of his tenure, in his letters, he expresses again and again his longing to return to Mount Vernon, to hang up uh, the, uh, the keys to power, um, to let this ship of state be uh, driven and navigated by someone else, someone more competent and um, learned in his opinion. He, he thought quite low of his own education. It was something of which he was always conscious. And to return to Mount Vernon, to ride on horseback, to oversee his fields, um, to hopefully make a lucrative crop, <laughs> which was always evading him, um, and simply to to live out his existence in that way. I think a lot of our founders were similarly inspired. Thomas Jefferson, for instance, though he, in his letters, uh, declares himself an Epicurean in the classical sense, wanted the very same thing. He wanted to return to Monticello 
and in his case specifically to engage in deep philosophical thought, um, to write his letters, to publish more books aside from his notes on Virginia, but was unable. So uh, it's a long prelude to a question. Uh, do you think that these founders of ours exhibited the the Marcus Aurelian type of Stoicism? Do you think that they were Stoic, uh, Stoics in a modern sense? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think it's a coincidence that they demonstrated these characteristics. They were raised on the classical tradition, right? So at the time, education included learning about the Greeks and the Romans who had come before. And as we can see in the way the founders set up the American constitution and the whole system of government, they were highly influenced by the examples of classical Athens and then later the Roman Republic. So they were completely steeped in these classical influences and not just government, but obviously the philosophical side as well. It's actually really interesting because, so after um, Stoicism started to decline at the end of the Roman Empire and obviously Christianity became the state religion and then eclipsed all of the other Greek philosophies, paganism didn't die right away but it was kind of absorbed in various ways into the Christian tradition. So of course, especially early on, you have a lot of Stoic influences on early Christianity. So in some ways, some Stoic ideas persisted into the Middle Ages and then into the Renaissance and the Enlightenment times. It was kind of always an undercurrent of intellectual thought in the West. Nothing, you know, nobody went around calling themselves a Stoic but there was actually a pretty significant revival of Stoic thought in the late 17th century. You had English figures like Shaftesbury and Hutchison, and these also influenced the flowering of the Scottish Enlightenment. Um, so a lot of these ideas about character and you know, self-governance and this kind of thing, they were definitely in the intellectual currents that influenced the American founders, for sure. Yeah, so it, it always seems to me that the kernels of Stoicism existed um, and were, were sort of disseminated uh, throughout different religions and throughout different ages and present themselves in subtle ways. And as soon as you know, and and you come to know this through works like yours, uh, as soon as you know some of these ideas upon which Stoicism is based, you begin to detect them, right? You begin to see them, like you said, in the Scottish Enlightenment. You begin to see them in George Washington, who never professed himself as a Stoic and never uh, you know, claimed any direct lineage from Marcus Aurelius. Um, but he exhibits these qualities that appear time and again, like you said. Um, I want to make mention now uh, of Christianity, because I find this very curious. I've, I've read it described, the religion described as sort of a syncretic union between Greek philosophy and maybe Judaic theology, let's say. Of course, with a little something of its own, a little tertium quid that, that makes it very unique. Tell us if you can, if you feel comfortable doing so, of the, the Stoic influences on Christian thought, not necessarily Christian theology or Christian metaphysics, but maybe Christian ethics. Yeah, um, well, Seneca was very popular throughout, well, ever since he started writing. So I would say that he has been the most influential on Christian ethics, especially early Christian ethics. Um, and we can see Seneca, for example, saying, you know, when I turn the light out at night, I review my day. I, I see what I could have done better, what I'm going to do better tomorrow, this kind of thing. So the different spiritual exercises that 
were very common in all of the ancient Greek schools kind of enter into Christianity in this way. So we think about a lot of the medieval monastic exercises, for example, um, you know, prayer and meditation, this kind of thing, that was a continuation of the Greek philosophical tradition and particularly Stoicism. The Stoics did have a very interesting, um, they called it physics, their view of God as being imminent in the world. And in some ways, I think you can see that kind of trickling a little bit into Christianity, um, just as far as God being everywhere. Of course, it was a very it was a very different type of theology, but I think there were, might have been some influences there as well. There's actually I was going to recommend to your readers anyone who's interested in the influences of Stoicism on intellectual history and religious history. The Handbook of the Stoic Tradition, edited by John Sellers, is an excellent, excellent read. And it covers everything from directly after, I think, the death of Marcus Aurelius, all the way through the present day. Highly recommend it. Oh, thank you for that recommendation. And I just jotted that down in my notebook. Uh, so I will certainly uh, mention that in the show notes below and, and include a link to it as well. Um, no, that's that, uh, it's an excellent response that you provided us. Uh, I think it's also important to highlight uh, some of the Eastern influences on Stoicism. I think this is something that we often neglect. Um, for instance, Stoicism, at least Stoicism in its uh, regard to, um, as you said, physics, uh, metaphysics, and more abstract ideas, takes a little bit from uh, the oriental thought of the time. I'm thinking specifically of the idea of eternal recurrence, this idea of a cosmic, um, an everlasting cosmic scene that's playing out again and again and again, in which we're playing a very small role. <laughs> um, and I think in some ways that's a borrowing from uh, a, a philosophy, religion like Buddhism, um, or maybe some of the other Eastern ideas that were that were infiltrating and moving about Greece from from Ionia, from the what would now be Turkey, from these areas, because there was a great interchange of culture and ideas between these two areas of the world. And I think that's why these brilliant philosophies emerged in the in the fourth and third centuries BC. It's because it had it had a little while to marinate to to have these ideas infiltrate throughout Greece, throughout Athens, and like I said, kind of mingle uh, and refine themselves and and come into their fullest their fullest being. Can you maybe speak to that just for a moment? Maybe some of the the Eastern ideas, because this is something I noted on your website. Um, um, uh, whose name is now escaping me, Living in Agreement, mm -hmm. your website. Uh, there, there was a brief mention made of uh, con Confucianism and perhaps Buddhism as well as perhaps having some affinity to Stoicism. So can you speak about that a little bit more? Right. Well, I'm not sure we can actually point to any Eastern influences such as Buddhism or Confucianism on ancient Stoicism. There was quite a lot of intermingling, but I'm not sure we can point to any direct influences. There are people who argue that Pyrrho, one of the skeptics, who traveled to ancient India with Alexander's army and was influenced and brought back some ideas in that, that way, and that's certainly possible. 
Um, so a lot of what I talk about on my website is just, you know, what we do in the 21st century. We have all this wonderful information about the different wisdom traditions around the world. Why not use it? My idea, especially on living in agreement, is that there is an underlying, you know, kind of structure to wisdom, to human wisdom in every society. So Stoicism doesn't have, you know, the one true path. There are other ways that we can think about it. So incorporating what people have done in Buddhism for the past 2000 years or Confucianism can help us as we kind of try to piece together Stoic philosophy and rebuild the tradition as a philosophy of life, right? Mm -hmm. The tradition was kind of lost. We don't have any teachers to look back at and say, oh, you know, this is how you be a Stoic. This is how you can be a Stoic. Um, so we're kind of piecing it together as we go. And for that reason, I like to look at a variety of different traditions. Um, going back to your ideas about eternal recurrence, I think that comes from the influence of Heraclitus. And earlier you mentioned the pre-Socratic philosophers. So here we go with Heraclitus, a pre-Socratic philosopher. He was well known in antiquity for his doctrine of eternal flux, things constantly changing. And we see this coming out quite a lot in Marcus Aurelius's meditations. He also strongly influenced some of the early Greek Stoics, such as Cleanthes, who was the second head of the Stoa after Zeno. So his doctrine of fire, you know, the world being born from fire and then eternal recurrence was kind of incorporated into the early Stoic theology. Um, yeah, so very interesting. And, and I think it comes out very strongly in Marcus Aurelius where he's constantly talking about change. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And again, I just, I find it uh, incessantly fascinating to, to, to follow these strings, to follow these threads that connect each of the philosophers. So yes, you mentioned Heraclitus, one of the great and um, enigmatic uh, pre-Socratics whose, uh, whose um, fragmentary um, maxims, I guess you could call them, um, still live on with us today, such as you can't step in the same river twice, right? Uh, this idea of uh, incessant flux. But I wonder if his ideas, if you follow them back, can't then also find their home in the eastern parts of the world, him being from, his being from uh, that portion of Ionia, I, Ephesus perhaps, I, I could be wrong about his, his place of birth. Um, but then you follow him forward, as you said, and you find his influence, like you said, on Cleanthes, and then following it forward in Marcus Aurelius, and then in Friedrich Nietzsche, of all people. Uh, Nietzsche uh, talks about this idea of the eternal recurrence um, at some length. Uh, and it's fascinating then to, if you have a, a, sound hist uh, a, a sound knowledge of philosophical history, the history of thought, and Stoicism specifically, and, and, and Socratic thought as well, you begin to draw these links that you're drawing for us as well. Um, and you you see where these philosophical kernels pop up time and again, be it in, in, in the fifth century BC or the late 19th century AD of the common era in which uh, Nietzsche wrote and lived. So I think highlighting that fact is, is very important. Uh, now you did mention briefly, and I want to focus on this just for a moment, um, the fact that it's important to borrow from all the wisdom traditions at our disposal, to which now then more, more than ever, we have almost immediate access. Um, 
Now, you describe a charming anecdote in your most recent book, Journal Like a Stoic, um, about your, the, oh, I'm sorry, about the grandmotherly wisdom uh, of which you were the recipient prior to your going to college, I believe. Your gra uh, grandmother advised you against buying what you called magic beans <laughs> um, that we all too often have a habit of purchasing. Uh, it's important to be wary of any doctrine, philosophy, or religion that claims not only to address, but to solve any problem with which, uh, through the many trials and tribulations of life, we're likely to be faced. So do you think that stoicism and stoicism alone claims to do too much? Is it that magic bean <laughs> uh, against which you were advised uh, from purchasing? Well, obviously, I don't think so, because I've divided, de devoted my whole life to it. Um, yeah, the thing that kind of separates Stoicism from some other things, some other self-help trends, for example, or even some wisdom traditions or religions, is that you're always supposed to think for yourself. The Stoics should never accept anything that they don't understand for themselves. So, you know, if I, if I tell you that virtue is necessary and sufficient for happiness, you should say, okay, why? You need to be able to understand it for yourself before you can adopt that as your own personal creed. So if, if anything sounds like it doesn't make sense, I mean, the Stoics were great logicians. They were very famous in antiquity for their logic. So we want to thoroughly understand everything that we believe. We want to know why we believe it. We want to make sure that we're not being tricked in some way or that we could possibly misunderstand. We want to follow things out as far as we can to make sure that we do have a proper grasp on things. So it's all about having that firm foundation of truth and understanding and knowledge, which technically, according to the Stoics, is only fully available to the sage, to the perfectly wise person. So none of us are going to ever have this perfect system of knowledge, but it's something to aim for. It's something that we want to orient our lives toward. But there's no expectation that we arrive at this sage-like omniscience, is there? Uh, no, certainly not omniscience. I think we would probably say that the sage has perfect judgment. They're not going to be a godlike figure in that they know everything, but whatever they encounter, they will have perfect judgment towards. Based on the information that is available to them, they will make the proper decision. They could be, you know, they could have incorrect information. Someone tells them the wrong thing, for example, or their senses fool them in some way. But based on the information that they have, the sage will always have a correct judgment. And no, I mean, they, they Stoics used to say that the sage is as rare as the phoenix. It comes along once every 500 years or something like that. So it's not something that we will probably ever attain. Zeno himself didn't claim to be a sage, neither did Epictetus. It's just for us to set our compass by and so to make sure that we're on the right path towards this direction. Yeah, and, and I think there's always a very honest acknowledgement of one's fallibility uh, in the Stoic tradition. I want to ask you, uh, you speak of logic, and of course, logic is something um, of which we've lost a hold <laughs> by and large in the modern era. And I don't mean just in the colloquial use of the word logic. I mean, uh, you know, formal logic, looking at syllogisms, for instance, and following arguments from major premises to their conclusions. Um, that said, do you think that Stoicism promotes a somewhat colorless 
lifeless approach to life. Do you think that there's room for something that might be beyond logical, something like faith? Now, some might argue that faith is perfectly logical. Um, some might argue that they believe because of an absurdity. I believe it was Tertullian who said that. I'm, I'm sure I'm wrong in my attribution uh, to him of that saying. But what do you think of that sort of a perspective, that uh, that belief because of absurdity, believing because something is absurd, or having faith that stretches beyond reason, taking a sort of Kierkegaardian approach to um, a more religious thought? I'm not sure I can comment on absurdity itself, but I will say there are a lot of people who do manage to reconcile more of a tradi traditional religious faith, such as Christianity or Islam, with Stoicism. It works for them. I'm a very big proponent of saying, you, you do what makes sense for you. You make your life philosophy work and fit into what you believe. So, you know, I'm not going to tell people what they should or shouldn't believe. That's for them to decide. I decide what makes sense to me. Each person can decide what makes sense to them, given their life experiences, given their character, given where they are in their circumstances right now. So I would strongly encourage everyone to think it through for themselves and do what makes sense for, for you. You know, mm -hmm. don't do what I tell you to do. Don't do what I what makes sense for me unless it also makes sense for you. So it's something that we all have to take responsibility for. Right. Do, do you think it's uh, a sine qua non? Do you think there's, a, there's an essential role for a deity in the Stoic creed, in the Stoic philosophy? I don't mean to call it a creed. Uh, I don't want to confuse it with a religion. Um, but throughout the writings of the Stoics, as you well know, there, there is often reference to, to uh, uh, providence, to an overseeing God. It, you know, he might be in, evoked in different ways by different names, uh, but at the very least, there is a theistic uh, thread that runs through a lot of Stoic doctrine. So do you think the character of a deity is essential to true Stoic thought? So that's a great question, and there is a lot of debate in the modern Stoic community about whether that type of ancient belief is essential for one to be a Stoic today. So I personally don't think so. My brand of Stoicism, I call it a humanist philosophy. So I personally don't think it's the role of philosophy to tell us you know, about a deity or a non-deity, whether it's you know, theistic, atheistic, pantheistic, whatever it is. I don't see a life philosophy as doing that for me. My life philosophy tells me how to relate to other people, to the world, to myself. So I just assign it a very different role from the way philosophy was viewed in the ancient world. You know, in ancient Greece, philosophy encompassed what we would today see as science, theology, ethics, everything. It was all kind of packaged into philosophy and all of that was studied together at philosophical schools. So at that time, it was very important for Stoicism or Epicureanism or whatever it was to explain everything about the universe. Today, we're in a completely different situation where we have so much scientific knowledge in so many different areas, in psychology, in astronomy, you know, biology, everything. We just know so much more about how the world functions. So this is just my personal view that I'm describing here. 
um, I believe that a life philosophy tells me how to live a life and it's it doesn't depend on the existence or non-existence of divinity anywhere. Now, other people obviously take a different view. And there are quite a few people who adhere to the ancient Stoic belief of um, a divine, a divinity in the world, inherent in every particle of the world. So that certainly was what the ancient Stoics believed, kind of a, um, not pantheism, but pandeism, I think is the most accurate description. So yes, absolutely, there are people who believe that, but it's not necessary, I think, to be a Stoic in the 21st century. Interesting. Uh, yes, it does become a little bit complicated when you start to uh, look at what seems to be a materialist philosophy, and I don't mean that in a deprecatory way. I don't mean as though these are, uh, you know, <laughs> luxuriant be uh, beings going to the malls and spending all their their money on items. Not materialist in that way, but materialist in the the atomistic way. They're looking at all these particles, atoms, these irreducible uh, things with which the world is filled, and seeing God in all of them. So it's a very be it pantheistic or pandeistic uh, view. It's a very godly um, world in which they were living. I wonder if a, if a reconciliation between those two uh, magisteria that you laid out, the philosophical and the religious, is needed more today. Uh, what, it seems as though religion and religious affiliation is, is decreasing significantly in the West. America at a slower pace than in Europe, for instance. Um, and some of these philosophical schools seem to be slowly acquiring a broader audience, at the very least, and perhaps, perhaps adherence as well. Do you think that perhaps a religion like Christianity would do well maybe to acknowledge some of those stoic roots uh, to which it can return, in order to, oh, I don't know, uh, increase the, the number of its congregation? Oh, I don't think I'm qualified to talk about that, but I do believe you're right that Stoicism and other, you know, maybe the Eastern philosophies are becoming much more popular these days because of the decline of traditional religion. I think absolutely, as humans, we need a system for living a meaningful life and making sense of, you know, the big questions. Why am I here? What should I do? How should I live? Right. And, and what is my meaning? What do you think is the, the role that Stoicism fills? What does it accomplish that a traditional religion like Christianity fails to accomplish? I think it's not that someone would encounter Stoicism and then give up their traditional religion. I don't see that happening very much. I see more of a syncretic approach when when people do encounter Stoicism, they can approach it kind of like I do just as a philosophy of life and integrate it into their existing theological beliefs. So I don't really see that so much happening. I see more of people just leaving traditional religion and then looking around for some other kind of system to fill the gap because we, you know, we all need that. So I don't think it's necessarily competition. I just think as you know, in the United States, it was traditionally a Christian society. I think as that kind of declines, then something else has to fill the breach. And Stoicism is really perfect for helping us make sense of our lives. 
it might not be as encouraging to uh, the priest or or the pastor or the rabbi whose whose congregation whose whose synagogue and whose church is now becoming increasingly empty but i but i do think that if a void has to be filled and i think indubitably it does have to be filled i think we're seeing the consequences of its continuing um um emptiness uh, today I think if it does have to be filled, Stoicism is more than a worthy um, candidate to do that job. Uh, and I don't mean to to fixate on on religion. I'm sort of in my in my own life uh, in a in a religiously uncertain place, <laughs> to say the very least. Uh, I'm I'm curious about all sorts of theological arguments, discussions, proofs, be they. Um, Thomistic from the Catholic tradition, or be them from Maimonides in the Jewish tradition. But I, like you, am sort of looking at all these wisdom traditions and trying my best to to absorb um, that which they have to offer. Um, what that ultimately, what that accretion ultimately makes, I, I'm not sure. I'll have to check back in with you. Um, have you read Karen Armstrong's work? I read a work of, of hers recently. Uh, it was the um, the history of God. Was that the was that the title? Yeah, she's written a history of God and the case for God, as well as some other biographies of Muhammad and Jesus and things like that. Yes, yes, a British a British historian, I believe. Yes, she's she's either quite elderly or has passed. She's yes, she's elderly. She's a former nun, and she spent the rest of her life looking at different religions. I think she's one of our best religious writers, but this is what she does. So, for example, in the case for God, she looks at kind of the similarities. And earlier you were mentioning threads. So she's looking at the threads that link kind of theological beliefs in many different wisdom traditions and societies. And she argues that the function of religion is meaning making and mythos so religion was never supposed to be about facts which it's become today it was just supposed to be a way of us acknowledging that we don't know and that we can still have a reverential approach towards nature and towards each other even if we don't know and that that has been completely lost today that today is all about literal belief and this has been part of the reason for the decline of more traditional religions. So for your listeners, I highly recommend Karen Armstrong's work. Yes, and again, uh, I have her History of, of, of God on my bookshelf right next to another book that I'll recommend to you because I have, okay. to, <laughs> I have to reciprocate. Sure. And that is Jack Miles' book. Okay. Again, another comparative religion scholar. I believe he's a Protestant. Um, and his book is called uh, God, a biography. It's less, a, it's, in this case, it's less a, bi uh, a comparative work, but um, a more specific look at the, this idea of God and who he is as a character in a story uh, mm -hmm. that is told beautifully. And I only think of it because I think it's on my bookshelf, <laughs> that one, <laughs> next, to, uh, next to Karen Armstrong's work. So again, I'll make a link to that in the show notes below. That's though. That's a very fertile uh, area of conversation. Though I want to, I want to focus on that just for a minute longer, if you don't mind. This idea of facts versus myth, this literalism of today, uh, as opposed to the more symbolic nature of the past. 
why do you think it is we've arrived at this scientific materialist point uh, in modern society? Oh, because of the Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment has brought us many, many benefits, but we've also learned to think in a very, very, you know, scientific and materialistic, not, not in the stoic sense that you were talking about, but, you know, um, we're kind of losing the sense of the sacred because we're so used to manipulating things and facts. And we have explained away many of the questions that people had about the way the world functions. You know, living in a, a pre-literate, pre-industrial society, you really might have no idea what caused the lightning. If someone got struck by lightning, what else are you going to think that, other than it was an act of God, right? We've now explained away a lot of these things. And in doing so, we've kind of relieved most people of their immediate need to explain the bare facts of their life, going back mm -hmm. to God or some kind of religious experience. But what we will never be able to do is remove people's need to feel belonging and feel important and feel a sense of meaning in their lives. And this is part of the package that religion used to offer. It used to all be wrapped up together, I think, in explaining you know, God and why, why the earth is here, what we're doing here. It was all together. And now we've peeled away a lot of those explanations and it kind of unraveled the entire package. And so now we're left searching for, for that meaning in our lives, which we have to have, which we can't do without. We can't live without that. So that's just my take on it. <laughs> Yeah, and this uh, concept of meaning and meaninglessness is uh, one on which I urgently want to expand. But first, I just want to I want to mention my own uh, evolution, so to speak. Maybe throughout my twenties into the very earliest stage of my thirties, and that is a transition from seeking facts, from seeking scientific truths. Um, falsifiable um, observations of the empirical world to cultivating a greater appreciation of myths, of narratives, and of the truths uh, around which those myths and narratives are built. I confess to having been very dismissive of, of the latter um, a few years ago. I don't think I ever dispossessed myself of of a numinous inclination of a of a of a feeling and an articulate feeling that that there is something greater um, that there is some sort of providence in the world but i was having difficulty reconciling that with a more scientific materialist view of the world uh, questioning the, the biblical stories for instance and and of course in stoicism we're not dealing with the Bible, uh, but just to use this as an example of my own approach, uh, reconciling the creation in six days or the splitting in, uh, in Exodus of the Red Sea um, and some of these extraordinary uh, miracles, suspending nature, uh, these, these events of which David Hume, of whom you made mention, was so viciously scornful uh, and eloquently uh, derisive, having been exposed to his work, having been exposed to the to the works of 
the, the more recent um, atheists and agnostics such as Christopher Hitchens and um, Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris, it, it became very difficult to, to try to find the compatibility, the reconciliation between these biblical stories, the, the impulse toward the divine that I felt um, and, and an actual belief in God. Um, but I think in time it's been my exposure to some of the romantic poets, people like Coleridge, people like Wordsworth, um, a rediscovery of classical literature and philosophy, um, and the works of people like Armstrong, people like James Frazier, who have revealed to me that these myths are integral and, and might have the attribute of fact uh, or of truth for which I was always looking. It's something with which I'm still grappling. And I know uh, there will be some pushback to that idea of, of a myth being fundamentally true. Uh, but a myth is, is a very powerful thing. A mythos is a very powerful thing that can't be that can't be diminished, that can't be cast aside, that can't be categorized as something purely intended for a, for a Disney production. Uh, I think it's, it's much more fundamental to our being than that. Now, I know I'm, I'm going on a little bit, but we've spoken multiple times about meaning, finding meaning in this world. Uh, I want to make reference to Viktor Frankl at this stage of our conversation. And I want to read to you a line from his celebrated work, which is fittingly called uh, Man's Search for Meaning. Uh, Frankel, of course, he was an Austrian psychiatrist by whom the field of logotherapy was founded. Uh, more famously, he was uh, one of the few Jewish survivors of the Auschwitz concentration camp, uh, behind whose walls and uh, within whose gas chambers multiple members of his family uh, perished. In Man's Search for Meaning, Frankel says, and this is a quote to which I find myself continually returning, everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Do you think that Frankel, a devout Jew who suffered unthinkable horrors, uh, is, in this historic statement of defiance, exemplifying the Stoic mind? I think, yes, that fits exactly with Stoicism. And in fact, there is a lot of overlap in the Stoic community. Many people do cite Frankel's work as kind of a modern-day iteration of Epictetus, for example. So Epictetus was born a slave in ancient Greece. He later was able to study philosophy. He gained his freedom. He opened a philosophical school. But you can see in all of his work and all of his teachings that he's going back to this exact same idea that Frankel makes mention of, which is the internal freedom that you have, even when you don't have anything else. He says, you can chain my leg. If a tyrant comes and says, I'm going to put you in jail, you still have the choice about what to do and how to approach that. And so Epictetus recommends saying, okay, fine, you can chain my leg, but that's not me. I am not my leg, I'm not my body. And he says, even if a tyrant wants to behead you, as long as you are not afraid of death, 
as long as you don't see death as an evil, which in the Stoic view, death is not an evil, then you still have your freedom. You have the freedom to say no up until the very last moment. And so, yes, Frankel, in his logotherapy, he's describing something that's very similar to this, very inspirational. And I think it's no small thing, no small matter that Epictetus speaks of having a leg chained because I believe at least one of his appendages was was broken or he was hobbled <laughs> as a consequence of his time as a slave um, in uh, in during his lifetime, during the earlier part of his lifetime. So the fact that one leg was chained was perhaps um, uh, doubly significant. Si doubly significant for for a man like him. That's an interesting connection to draw between those two. And I, I I, never noticed that. So thank you for pointing that out. The connection that is between Epictetus, uh, a slave throughout most of his life, but a, but, a, but a brilliant thinker who eventually opened his own school, uh, and Viktor Frankl, uh, a brilliant doctor in his own right in the field of psychiatry prior to uh, the annexation of Austria, who then in his own way opened his own school uh, of logotherapy. Uh, which of course takes from the Greeks the term logos, um, meaning reason, word, um, wisdom. Um, so do you want to speak a little bit more about Viktor Frankl, uh, about this idea uh, of of a devout Jew who'd suffered so much, uh, maybe um, coming to Stoicism in a different way? Because it's it seems to me that, now, I don't know this part of, of Frankl's biography, but it doesn't appear to me that he he arrived at his obviously stoic uh, statement um, that I just quoted from a from a classical perspective. It, it seems as though it was just from his the trials and tribulations that he endured and his and his Jewish faith. Perhaps I'm wrong about that, and perhaps you're more knowledgeable. So, if you have anything to contribute to that idea, could you? Uh I don't have a whole lot to say. I'm not really super knowledgeable about Frankel's early training. I do know that he developed a lot of the ideas that would later become logotherapy. He did develop them before going into the concentration camps. And so that gave him a chance to kind of work them out and prove them, prove that they worked. And then he later developed them further. Hey, what a way to put them to the <laughs> test. Right. Goodness. There's one doctrine that Frankel uses a lot that is also very similar to Stoicism. And again, I don't know about the, the derivation if he derived it from Stoic thoughts, which is very possible because, of course, at that time, people were still very, you know, very interested in classics, especially in you know, Central Europe. So it's possible that he did get them from, from reading the classics. But he says, in between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space, that's where you have the power to choose. And this is an idea that we see in cognitive behavioral therapy today, CBT, which is one of the more popular forms of therapy. It's also highly related to Stoicism, where the Stoics speak about our impressions. And we have the ability, once, we, once a thought strikes our mind, a proposition strikes our mind, we have the ability to assent to that and say, yes, this is true, or to withhold our assent. So we see Marcus Aurelius doing this in the meditations. He says, you have heard someone says something bad about you, but you do not have to make the judgment that you have been harmed. So you have that power in between the stimulus and the response. That's where you make your choice. And that is extremely powerful. That's how you become no longer a slave like Epictetus was, 
um, to your circumstances or like Frankel was, you have the power to become something else. And that is what nobody can take away from you. And I think that's the most important lesson uh, to be derived from the writings of Frankel, among other lessons that are that are that are of, of great importance as well, and from the writings of a lot of the Stoics, the fact that you that you execute self-governance, that you are responsible for your response. I again, I read Viktor Frankl as many do, uh, without expecting to find this kernel of Stoicism. Uh, coming up to the to the fore in his work, and was absolutely struck by that fact that it did, and that lesson I remember it having been taught to me by Marcus Aurelius, um, this idea that between stimulus and response there is a latency uh, with which you fill your well your intention, uh, and you make of it what you will. So you you covered it, I think, perfectly, but I want to ask you, what do you do or how do you reflect in that period between stimulus and response? Let's say uh, one of your children, of course, I should mention you're a, a mother of three. Um, one of your children does something that's just absolutely irritating. Um, and it's for the, the nth time you've told him or her on multiple occasions, not to do it. The stimulus has happened, or the stimuli <laughs> have happened. As a mother uh, in the real world, you know, removed from our discussion, removed from our philosophical texts, what do you do to moderate, to modulate that response? Well, that takes a lot of practice. <laughs> it takes a lot of self-awareness and awareness of what's going on in your mind. So I divide my stoic practice into kind of two parts. One is preparation, the things that I do when I wake up in the morning, such as reading, journaling, reading the inspiring quotes, this kind of thing to prepare me for the day. So that gets my mind in the right place to begin with. It kind of gives me a boost throughout the day and keeps those stoic thoughts at the forefront of my mind. And then when I'm actually going about my business, working with my kids, for example, that's when I have the opportunity to pay attention. So the ancient Greeks had a word for attention, prosike, which means just being aware of what your mind is doing, paying attention. Today, we might say being intentional about your thoughts and your actions. And so when you bring this awareness to what you're doing, so if my child does something I don't like, you know, I'm not just going to react and fly off the handle without thinking about it. I'm going to actually pause. And part, part of what I'm doing in my training is changing my values. So if I, if I value that my child does, does something exactly right all the time, then I'll automatically be upset when that doesn't happen. But if I value raising children as a learning experience, both for myself and for the child, then I'm not gonna be upset when something doesn't go to plan, right? So it depends on your perspective and how you see things. Likewise, if you, you know, if you valued money above all else, then if you didn't get the promotion you were hoping for, you would automatically be upset. There would be nothing anyone could do to make you not upset because you have that particular value. On the other hand, if you value your character and being a good person above all else, then it doesn't matter whether you got that external thing or not. 
you will always have reason to to be happy and satisfied with who you are. So it all goes back to values in stoicism. So part of what I'm doing is training my sense of values and my sense of what's important in the world and my sense of perspective, right? Yeah, so you uh, vitally uh, emphasize training because some people might look at you and say, Brittany, you're just a peaceful person. You're a calm, equanimous person. Nothing riles you, nothing irritates you. So of course, when you have children, when you have a busy life, when you have um, obligations, when you have clients, when you have business engagements, you're going to handle it all perfectly. But I'm so very different from you. Our personalities couldn't be further apart. What do you say to people who attribute your uh, ability to implement stoic parenting, let's say, to a very lucky inheritance of a personality type? Yeah, that question does come up sometimes, not to me directly, but in the stoic community in general. Um, and I do think that different people are, you know, have different temperaments that are better suited to stoicism than others. I don't think stoicism is for everybody. And I would never say, you know, that everybody has to do the same thing. I think it's beautiful that we do have different options for people to look at. But at the same time, I think there are parts of stoicism that everybody can make use of. Even if you don't ascribe to the whole philosophy, I think there is a lot of wisdom. I think pretty much anyone who reads a stoic book, who reads meditations, for example, would be able to extract some genuine wisdom from it, even if they don't become a card-carrying stoic. But you know, there's obviously some life lessons to be learned. So I would say, take what you can from stoicism. If it's not your cup of tea, that's totally fine. But I do believe there's truly something for everyone at some level. If it's not your cup of tea, go get yourself a Starbucks latte and become an Epicurean. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you mentioned your reading and journaling practice in the morning. Because you're so accomplished in this field, I want to ask you, and for our listeners' benefit, what do you read in the morning and how do you go about journaling? And I want to use this as a springboard to get into your most recent book, uh, Journal Like a Stoic. So maybe you can uh, give us a, a view into your life. How do you begin your day with reading and journaling? Right. So I always designate some time for stoic activities and reflection. And this has changed over the course of the past six years that I've been studying Stoicism. So at first, I was reading a lot of books by modern Stoics. My very first book was by William Irvin. It's called A Guide to the Good Life, The Ancient Art of Stoic Joy. I highly recommend it, especially if you're not familiar with Stoicism. But even if you are familiar with Stoicism, then it's, it's a great kind of overall view of why anyone in the 21st century would be interested in this philosophy. But it was my introduction, and so I always recommend it to other people. It's, it's really good. So at the beginning, I was reading a lot of these kinds of books, and then I jumped into the ancient works. So Seneca, Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius. There are some others such as Musonius Rufus, who I would recommend. There's plenty of readings that you can do. So, you know, that takes a long time to, to work through all of that. And how much time each morning do you dedicate to your reading practice? It depends on when my kids wake up. <laughs> sometimes I have five minutes, sometimes I have 45 minutes. But, you know, I it is kind of my ritual. I look forward to it when I wake up in the morning. I get my cup of coffee. I go downstairs. I do my reading. I do a lot of reflection. That's when I do my writing. Sometimes I'll think about my next piece for my blog or whatever I'm working on. 
So I do think consistency is super important, whether you're into journaling or not, but just find some kind of exercise that works for you. Now, there was a time when my kids were younger, when I really didn't have a moment to myself, you know, and for anybody in that situation, I understand you, I've been there. But what I would recommend at those times is that you just find a small moment that's already in your routine. And I use the example of brushing your teeth. <laughs> you have to brush your teeth twice a day, right? I mean, you, you can't skip it, you shouldn't skip it. So just integrate that into your stoic practice. Use that time, okay, I have two minutes. I'm gonna reflect on my day. I'm gonna think about the day ahead and how I can apply my stoic principles to my challenges. And then in the evening, okay, how did I do? Okay, maybe I didn't do so well on that one. Tomorrow I'm gonna do better. So even if you don't have any other time, you can find a few moments somewhere and integrate it into your routine so that you don't forget, you can't skip it. Yeah, I think that that integration, uh, brief though it may be, is absolutely essential. Uh, now I'm not someone who has a lot of uh, demands on my time, but uh, my sister, for instance, is the mother of a beautiful one-year-old daughter and, um, I just know from my conversations with her, it is difficult. And she just has one. And now she works full time. She works full time, has a very, very busy and demanding uh, life outside work and outside family. Uh, but I just know that it's difficult for a lot of people. They'll hear this and they'll think, okay, you say I can be a stoic in two minutes while I'm brushing my teeth. Uh, but I don't even have those two minutes to brush my teeth. Uh, I think you make a great point, though, is it. It's all self-created. This this practice has to come from within. It doesn't mean that you have to uh, go hike out into the wilderness uh, with Henry David Thoreau and uh, you know saunter about and contemplate all the, the meaning of life. It can be in very very short durations of time and doing uh, quotidian things. It can be while you're driving to the grocery store, driving to work on your long commute, waiting in line waiting in line to to check out your groceries you just stop and ground yourself and and think uh, as stoically as you can or as mindfully as you can um, do you think there's a there's an interlap an overlap i should say an interplay between what we call mindfulness which we tend to associate with you know yoga and buddhism and sort of the eastern tradition again and and stoicism there's definitely an overlap I think the sanitized version of mindfulness that's so common today, you know, is more just drawing attention to your thoughts, which I think is a great starting place because you have to be aware of what's going on in your mind before you can do anything about it, right? But stoicism goes a step further and says, okay, now that I'm aware of what's going on, what can I do about it? Can I kind of question this thought that's leading me to have anxiety or that's leading me into this bad relationship or whatever it is? You know, we all have things that we need to work on in our lives. So for stoic mindfulness, this prosike that I was talking about earlier, instead of just observing, we observe and then we talk to our thoughts and take action. I think that's an important differentiation between the two, mindfulness and stoicism. Thank you for clarifying that because I think a lot of times, uh, I don't I don't mean to say the two are confused, but you might think, okay, I'm being mindful of the fact that I'm preparing dinner, I'm putting the steak on the cast iron skillet. Okay, I'm mindful. Uh, yes, that's that's excellent. It's great to be engaged with the activity in the present, to be intentional. But stoicism, I think, as you as you outlined more eloquently than I, takes it 
a step further and brings you a, a level deeper. And I think that's absolutely uh, that's absolutely important. Uh, so thank you so much for uh, uh, revealing to us your your reading and writing schedule, at least as it pertains to the morning hours. Uh, tell me a little bit about your inspiration for this this work, Journal Like a Stoic. Again, to which I'll I'll include a link uh, in the show notes below, and and I urge you all to purchase and make use of. Uh, I I imagine it it was the fruit of your daily practice, but tell me a little bit about the process that that ended in this wonderful little book. Um, how you chose to separate it between the different courses, the three courses over the course of 90 days, uh, and the quotes that you decided to uh, incorporate, because as we know, there are many. Right, so this book was a little bit different from most in that the publisher actually came to me looking for an author. They had seen a gap saying, okay, we, we need more journals on stoicism. There are a couple, there are a couple good ones out there, but we need more, we need some newer ones. So Penguin Random House invited me to write the book. And, you know, I thought about it very carefully before I said yes, because um, they had some certain ideas that they wanted incorporated. And I decided that they had done their research well enough and, and I would sign on. So that's how the book came to be. Um, the three courses, so it's divided into, it's a 90-day program divided into three 30-day courses. So the first one is examining the inner critic, which, I love to start here because this is something that so many of us in this day and age have to deal with. We're so critical of ourselves. You know, we're so used to being judged by other people. And then we kind of internalize those judgments towards ourselves. And it's very harsh. It's also not based on our character traits. A lot of the way we're judged by the world is on external achievement, right? You know, where did you go to college? How much money do you make? What does your Instagram account look like? these kinds of things, it's all very, very external. We've lost that emphasis on character. And so these judgments are based on things that are out of our control, right? Things that make us unhappy because they're external, they're not based on character, and that we're constantly judging ourselves on as well. So starting with the inner critic is kind of bringing us to, to the core of the issue. So by learning to kind of judge yourself based on different criteria, not these external accomplishments, but hey, my effort and my intention to be a good person. We're really, you know, we're changing our values. It's a difficult process, which is why it's a whole 90-day program. And of course, you're not going to undergo a complete transformation in 90 days, but it's a great start. It's, it's a great way to kind of turn the tide, especially if you've been struggling with this kind of thing before. Yes, and it's, uh, I can guarantee you, a much uh, easier endeavor to begin than, say, a P90X or any sort of exercise <laughs> routine that, that guarantees a six-pack of abs at the conclusion of your 90-day commitment. Um, so, no, I think it begins perfectly um, with that inwardness, with the with a, uh, criticism of your inner critic, and I mean criticism in a, in a neutral term, in a neutral way. Um, now, I find the deluge of, of fabulous Stoic quotes difficult to sift through. How did you go about that? Yes, well, part of my practice over the past six years has been recording my favorite quotes. 
So a lot of what you see in the book are just some of my favorite quotes, the ones that have really spoken to me over time. So the, the ones that I think about throughout the day, the ones that have had a particular, that have been particularly helpful when I was dealing with a problem. So kind of what you're seeing in the book is the fruit of my practice and experience kind of sifting through the quotes that I find the most helpful and the most meaningful. Mm. Excellent. And, and that's probably, well, for our listeners, you don't even necessarily have to do this on your own because in this book, you get 90, basically 90 uh, exquisite quotes from all the great, from all the great Stoics, chief among them, uh, Marcus Aurelius, Epictetus, and Seneca. Um, but it is probably a good practice to, to accumulate your own list of quotations, uh, be they Stoic or, or not, uh, and, and refer to them uh, when in time, when in need of some wisdom or some, some uplift. Uh, I want to mention just briefly, uh, part B. So, so part A, the first uh, 30 days, of our 90-day uh, uh, journey together. It brings us through the inner self. Uh, in, in Course B, this subsequent part, we find peace with those around us. Now, this is, I find, especially difficult in our modern age when uh, there are so many reasons to dislike our neighbors and to <laughs> be at loggerheads with, with one another, especially in these contentious, political climates in which we forever find ourselves. So how does one go about finding peace with those around us? Right, so course B is called the road to acceptance. So it's partly about accepting other people. It's also about accepting the world around you and the things that you can't control, such as pain, illness, death, these things that we all have to face at some point in our lives. Um, and of course, probably the most famous doctrine from Stoicism today is the dichotomy of control, where you're looking at what is within my control and what is not within my control and focusing more on what's within your power to influence or change and then letting go of the things that you really have no control over. So that's kind of the basic idea behind the road to acceptance, but then we implement it in many different ways. So in the case of other people, we have to acknowledge with Marcus Aurelius that there are bound to be people in the world who are doing things that we don't approve of, right? That's just the nature of things. You're never going to have a world with all perfect people. Marcus Aurelius says, don't wait for Plato's Republic, which you were talking about earlier. You know, that's never going to happen. We're living in the real world. Okay, what are we going to do about it? So we can, one of the main stoic ideas in dealing with other people is what I would call compassion. But it's this idea that nobody does wrong intentionally. They're misguided. They are doing what they think is right. From our perspective, it's misguided. It's not the right way for them to be happy. It's not the right way to contribute to a better world, but they're misguided. They don't know any better. So this is how Marcus Aurelius says, teach them or put up with them. Teach them how to do things the right way. And if they don't accept it, you're just gonna have to put up with them. A, a course of action, I think, to which we are viscerally averse. <laughs> we we tend to feel like we must be in control and that we can uh, influence and sway the behavior of others. And I think that Marcus Aurelius's insight is one that is extraordinarily sympathetic and charitable and magnanimous. It it shows, and it also, it's, it's humble, even as an emperor, one of the wise emperors, it's an acknowledgement that he can't change you. 
uh, he might be able to tax you. He might be able to compel you to uh, or conscript you to military service. He might be able to do these things. I'm, I'm just using him as an example of a powerful individual. Um, but there are some things about you that he can't change. We are not Marcus Aurelius. We haven't that power. We haven't that prestige and esteem and ability. Who are we to think that we're so uh, omnipotent and so capable as to be able to change those around us? Uh, so I think that's that's a very important insight. You mentioned the dichotomy of control. Uh, this this reminds me of uh, Reinhold Niebuhr's Serenity Prayer, uh, of which he is supposed to be the author. I think it's generally agreed that he is. Uh, now, of course, I I risk butchering the Serenity Prayer. It's not one that I repeat and recite daily. But I I recently discovered Niebuhr. Um, and all of his writings, his political as well as religious writings. And he's just, a, I think, a, an understudied uh, American um, genius uh, with whom we should spend much more time. I, I think he he offers a great deal. Um, but it, it again, it reminds me of a, a profound Protestant Christian insight, which is the serenity prayer. Uh, God granting us the ability to, what, to have the courage to... God grant me the serenity to accept the things in life I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And the wisdom to know the difference. Thank you so much <laughs> for uh, for relieving me of the <laughs> what would have been an inevitably futile attempt to quote uh, Niebuhr. I need to commit that to memory. But but what do you think of a prayer like that? Do you think that that's stoicism in a nutshell? That's how I feel about a prayer uh, such as Niebuhr's. Yes, I think a lot of people do consider that stoicism in a nutshell. I mean, if you were going to cite six lines, then that's probably what I would choose. Of course, there is much more behind that packed into those lines. You need to know why, right? It's it's not just like we were talking about earlier. It's not just something that you accept blindly on faith. You need to know why this is important. And so this is what the full philosophy of stoicism unpacks. Why should you accept the things you can't change? What is the reason behind that? We're not doing it just because Reinhold Niebuhr told us to, right? right. So, so there is a lot more behind it, but absolutely that is a great expression, very simplistic of what Stoic philosophy is about. Yeah, and again, once you you read a book like Journal Like a Stoic, you spend some time on, on Brittany's uh, fabulous website and, and with her blogs, and of course with the original writers, the original thinkers, um, be they, um, uh, one one uh, author who's beside me right now, Frank McLinn, who has a great uh, biography of Marcus Aurelius, or some of the others whom you mentioned, uh, or um, um, or yourself, John, yeah, John yeah. John so, I'm sorry. Yes, yes, mm -hmm. yes, yes. Um, again, you begin to detect these kernels of stoicism everywhere, including in Reinhold Niebuhr, including in in Nietzsche. Uh, you know, taking two very opposite thinkers, <laughs> uh, a, a strenuous atheist and, and a, a very pious uh, Protestant. Uh, so with that, I want to turn quickly to the last stage, the ultimate stage of your 90-day program, and that is seeking virtue. Now, I'm going to ask you a little bit of a Socratic question. Uh, could you define for me in one <laughs> sentence, what is virtue? I don't know about one sentence, but for me, virtue goes back to human nature. We need to understand who we are as humans in order to understand how to live a good and flourishing life. 
So virtue is based on our, our human nature. So we are rational creatures. We are social creatures. These are two of our defining characteristics. Humans always live in groups. We literally cannot survive for the first dozen or so years of our lives without our group. We are built for communal living. And so in order to flourish, in order to find our true happiness and reach our true potential as a human, we need to be excellent at living with others. We need to be excellent at using this rationality that distinguishes us to a large degree from other creatures. Now, I, I do think that we should acknowledge the ancient Stoics were not very kind to animals. And today we have a much greater appreciation of how our intelligence is similar in some ways, for example, to the other great apes which the ancient Stoics didn't know about. And that's an interesting thought experiment. If the ancient Greeks had known about the great apes, what would they have done with, with their philosophy? So that's an aside. But so going back to our human nature, the ancient Stoics believe that once we know for sure who we are and what makes a human flourish, that's how we can become virtuous. And they said that we become virtuous by, by fulfilling our wisdom through, sorry, fulfilling our rationality through wisdom and courage and justice and self-control. You mention very sagaciously the two defining features of, of humankind, and that is our reason, our capacity to reason, and our sociability. Of course, Aristotle famously said that man is by nature a political animal. By this, of course, he didn't mean that we are um, slack-jawed watching CNN or uh, Fox News all day long. By Political, he meant that we have uh, an inherent impulse to, to congregate. And I don't mean religiously, I mean to form political bodies, to be social beings, right? Um, I think Stoicism occasionally has the reputation of being somewhat anti-social. I, I could be wrong about this, but sometimes when I speak about Stoicism in, in a much different uh, format from that in which you're speaking of it. Uh, people will look at Stoicism as somewhat reclusive, um, as wanting to retire into oneself, which is part of the program, uh, in order to better assess, control, and govern oneself, and to be a better, more functional, more temperate um, member of society. But I think that last part is often forgotten, is in order to become a better member of a greater society. So what do you think about that antisocial reputation uh, with which Stoicism has been marked? I think it is an accurate description of this very unfortunate misconception about Stoicism. Even the commonplace word stoic in our language today means someone who doesn't show emotion or represses emotion or doesn't engage with other people. And it's extremely unfortunate and in an inaccurate representation of the actual philosophy as it's lived because it's extremely social and it's all based around care. This is part of the reason why I started my nonprofit, Stoic Care, is so we can show people that actually Stoicism is all about caring about other people, caring about the planet, for example. It is about caring. It's not about not caring. So yes, very unfortunate kind of reversal of what Stoicism actually stands for, but it's about learning to care about other people wisely. 
right? We don't want to be governed by our passions. We want to be governed by our wisdom. So we learn to care for others in a very wise way, not letting our happiness depend on their actions, but loving them because this is what humans do. This is the fulfillment of our human nature is caring about other people. So if you want to live a flourishing life, you've got to learn to care about others wisely. Yes. And it's interesting, just as an aside, to note the contortion of Epicureanism or Epicurean, uh, a term of which we made earlier mention, and Stoicism or to be Stoic. Uh, now, it's not used in as derogatory a manner as uh, Epicureanism or Epicure, uh, but sometimes to be called Stoic is to be thought of as unfeeling, to be cold, to have. Um, sangua foi, to have cold blood, to have a sort of steeliness of temper, um, an inability to, to express oneself in a warm and, and exuberant manner. And in speaking with a friend prior to our conversation, that was one of his remarks. He said, Daniel, um, you know, I, I've been seeking um, some method of self-improvement. I've been through a divorce in the past year. Um, I'm in the process of leaving a job and finding a new one. I've fallen away from my religious belief in that community in which I used to find solace. Uh, so I'm a little bit lost. I, I sought out a few different self-help things. They were a bit superficial, so I leapt into uh, stoicism. Now, I will recommend to him uh, your work and your works. But one thing that was a barrier to him was this feeling of, of frigidity, this coldness. He felt like it was too stiff and unfeeling. So what would you recommend a person like that do? Uh, or how do you think he should approach Stoicism to derive from it all the wisdom and the benefit that is to be had? Well, first, I'll just say that's exactly the situation I was in when I found stoicism, minus the divorce part. But <laughs> we had moved to a new place. I had three kids to take care of. I didn't know how to orient myself. I was leaving a career and I call it my shipwreck moment. So I think many people do turn to stoicism in their shipwreck moment. The legend goes that this is how Zeno found stoicism as well. He literally had a shipwreck. He was a merchant and the whole cargo of his ship was lost. So he went from being wealthy and independent to being penniless in a moment. So he was stranded in Athens. He's wandering around the streets. He comes across a bookshop and picks up a book on the life of Socrates by Xenophon. He's so impressed by the life of Socrates that he asks the bookseller, where can I find a man like this? And at that moment, another philosopher, Crates, happened to be passing. So the bookseller points and says, follow that man. So the story is maybe apocryphal, but it's it's a nice founding myth. And, and I think I can really feel a connection with Zeno. I think a lot of people can, that this is the moment when your whole life as you knew it ends and you realize that you need something, you need some kind of system of guidance to help you. So I would definitely recommend Stoicism to your friend. I think as far as getting past the misconceptions about Stoicism, there are many different types of misconceptions, but the books that I described earlier, such as Bill Irvin's book, Donald Robertson's works, John Sellers works, these are a great introduction to the ancient texts. So if someone is a little bit wary of just picking up the meditations or Seneca's works, definitely start with the modern interpreters. That's what I try to do in my work. 
is to kind of make it more accessible or palatable to a 21st century audience. Um, but every reputable, I should say, yeah, there are some people that do not make mention of the Stoic aspects of Stoicism. Um, I don't know if you want to get into that, but there are people who do treat it as a series of life hacks. And in those cases, you might not get the full experience of how social stoicism is. So stick with the reputable ones, such as the people I just mentioned, or people associated with modern stoicism. You can go to modernstoicism.com or thestoicfellowship.com and look at the list of names or scholars associated with universities. These are your best bets for learning authentic stoicism. So try to stick with those. But any authentic author on stoicism will emphasize the very, very pro-social nature of this philosophy. Oh, excellent. Excellently put. And I'll be sure to convey uh, that that information to, to my friend, who's in a better place now. And I, I think <laughs> um, <laughs> um, having, having uh, settled himself somewhat. Um, um, let, let me see. Uh, just briefly, um, I wanted to mention that transition that you undertook uh, six or so years ago um, from one career to another. Now, you don't have to discuss that. I don't mean to delve into your personal life, but you did study uh, linguistics, and, and I promised uh, at the outset to touch on that. I know that's not the important part of our subject of our conversation today, which is this grander theme of Stoicism, but tell me a, a little bit about your undergraduate and graduate studies in linguistics and how that was, if it was, a bridge to Stoicism. Right, so I did not study linguistics as an undergraduate, I just did it in graduate school. And the reason I came to um, linguistics was because I was traveling abroad, I met my soon-to-be husband when I was in Turkey, I started teaching English in Turkey for a while, and then when we moved back to the United States, I kind of wanted to stay in that field. So I did my master's and eventually my PhD in applied linguistics. So applied linguistics is the field, I mean, it's the broader study of language as it's used in the world, but my particular area was second language acquisition, which is learning how people learn languages, how people have the best way to teach languages, creating materials for learning and teaching languages. So it's all about how people use and learn languages in the real world. I see, I see. So it wasn't as though you were a, a classical philologist like our yeah. friend Nietzsche. You were studying <laughs> linguistics in a different in a different way and for a different purpose. Correct. Yes, there is actually some overlap, though, with what I'm doing now, um, because it all goes back to human nature, right? So learning a language in some ways is parallel to learning a life philosophy. Might sound a little bit strange, but if you think about if you're an adult, you know, not a language that you learn as a child but an adult who's learning Spanish or French or Chinese or whatever it is, you're actually having to rewire your brain, right? So for the past 20 years, you've been speaking English and now suddenly you have to have new neural connections with Chinese or French or whatever it is. And so a philosophy of life is very much the same because you're rewiring your brain from your old thought habits and all those patterns that were not very helpful for you and now you're learning new ones. You're learning new reactions. You're learning to pay attention to your thoughts. You're learning to look for that gap between stimulus and response. All of this requires new wiring in your brain. So there's actually, it might be helpful for some of your listeners to think about that process in parallel. Just like learning a new language takes many years of practice. It takes devotion. It takes study, all of that. Learning a new philosophy does as well. 
of, of which I'm all too uh, aware, <laughs> having having attempted and mostly failed to learn Spanish. I, I came to some level of competency with the language, but that's fascinating to think of this language of life as opposed to a language of tongue, uh, this plasticity on which we're reliant, our brain's plasticity, uh, serves us not only uh, in speech, right, and our ability to communicate our thoughts with those uh, by whom we're surrounded, but but also to to change the way in which we talk to ourselves, address ourselves in different situations. I never thought about it, uh, about it that way, and I think that's that's a, a very deep and important insight that you that you highlight. That's fascinating. I also want to mention. The fact that you lived in Turkey and we spoke of Ionia, we spoke of the birthplace of the pre-Socratics, of Heraclitus and Democritus and all these great figures. So I think that was symbolic, the fact that you met your <laughs> spouse over there and um, were in this world, whether you knew it or not, absorbing some of these ancient, ancient influences. Just wanted to point that out. Just wanted to point that out. So I want to ask you, maybe we'll close within the next 10 minutes or so, because you've just been so generous with your time and so enlightening. I've loved every single minute of this conversation. You've addressed so many great, uh, great points and clarified a lot of my misconceptions and misunderstandings about this philosophy. And I'm sure those of many of my listeners as well. Um, I want to ask you, um, who in our culture today would you say most exemplifies Stoic? It's a difficult question and maybe not one to which there's a good answer, but um, looking for a modern model and not going back to a more than a adequate model in Seneca or, or Marcus Aurelius or, or even Viktor Frankl more recently, who today would you look at, maybe a celebrity or a political figure uh, in America or abroad, that embodies the, the Stoic spirit? It is a difficult question because we've moved so far from this ideal of character, I think. It's not something that we tend to require in our politicians these days. <laughs> so, it, I mean, it's honestly difficult to point to a well-known politician or celebrity who embodies stoic ideals in any way. Maybe I'm just missing someone. I'm sure there are people out there. Um, but I look for role models around me in life. For example, my mother-in-law. I mentioned that my husband is Turkish and my mother-in-law was born in a remote Turkish village on the other side of the country in the 1950s. You know, no electricity, this kind of thing. She didn't get to go to school because she had to stay home and take care of her younger siblings. Um, she got married at 17, had lots of children. She became a midwife. She even birthed her children alone at home, <laughs> which is, you know, just unimaginable to me. But Ch she children, you said multiple children. Um, well, at least one, which was my husband, <laughs> she had by herself. You know, it's it's mind blowing. And today she is the kindest, the, the most genuinely kind, humble, grateful, happy person that I've ever met you know, and she's not a Stoic by any means, you know, she's Muslim, which is another reason I think that we can find, you know, we can find a path in many different traditions. But so she's one of my role models, just to give one example of someone who's in my life. Um, you can look to public figures. One thing that I like to do is biographies. You have to be careful with autobiographies and memoirs, because obviously people can burnish their image a little bit, you may not get the full story. 
But one of my favorite works, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now, is called Some Do Care. It was written in the early 1990s by two psychologists, Colby and Damon, but it is still an excellent read. What they did is they went out and interviewed dozens of exemplary figures. People had been nominated as moral exemplars and they interviewed at least 30 of these moral exemplars. They wanted to find out what made them tick, you know, why they did the things they did. And it's a remarkable read, it's very inspiring. And you see, again, the same thread running through a lot of these interviews of people who were not famous, but they had been nominated by the people who worked with them as someone who was incredibly moral and giving. Um, so, so these kinds of people are my role models more than anyone I could point to as a celebrity or a politician. I'll await uh, the receipt of my, um, my nomination form. For, for America's uh, uh, more, most exemplary moral figure, uh, that's a great. That that would be a great uh, a great cast of characters among whom to vote for. Uh, that that would be interesting, and I'm glad that that a society somewhere um, holds a nomination like that. How about historically? You mentioned a few biographies. Um, we mentioned George Washington. We mentioned Thomas Jefferson, uh, a detested Epicurean. Can you think of any um, historical figures that weren't professed Stoics that really demonstrate great uh, and useful Stoic qualities? So maybe the most famous is Elizabeth Carter, who was a British woman at the end of the 18th century. She was actually the first translator of Epictetus into English, believe it or not. The first translator was a woman. And she was basically a self-taught scholar. She learned Latin, Greek, Arabic, Italian. She learned all of these languages. She was um, in the upper crust of society and she was financially independent due to her scholarship. She made a decision early in her life that she was not going to marry because of course at the time, women were expected to marry and start a family. And at that point, she would not have been able to continue her scholarship. So she determined to stay single and she was praised for her wit and wisdom by Samuel Johnson, who wrote the first English dictionary, um, by many other figures of that era. So she is said to be really exemplary of all the Stoic virtues, even though she didn't consider herself a Stoic because at the time, Christianity was not really seen as compatible with Stoicism because of those ancient pantheistic beliefs, but she exemplified many of the virtues that are, you know, apparent in Stoicism. So she's one historical figure I would point to. Another is Christine de Pizan, who was a woman in the Middle Ages. She's often cons considered the first professional woman writer. So you can see why these women appeal to me. Mm. Um, but she was not a Stoic by any means, but she did what she had to do in life. Her husband died, leaving her basically penniless without any means of supporting her family, her children and their other dependents. And so she started writing. She used the skills that she had. She didn't panic. She didn't get upset. She just did what she had to do in life and became very successful at it. So I really admire that ability to, you know, she didn't plan to become a professional writer, but it just happened that that's what she had to do. Similar to you when you didn't plan to write Journal Like a Stoic, but <laughs> Penguin very wisely, and I hope very profitably, sought your uh, talents out, recruited you and, and brought you on to write a wonderful book uh, that I uh, recommend to everybody, a Journal Like a Stoic. 
So I think with that, we should wrap our delightful conversation up. This has been, as I said, most instructive and enlightening for me, uh, hopefully for my, my listeners and my audience as well. I want to give you the stage. Do you have any parting thoughts, anything with which you'd like to leave our listeners? Parting thoughts. Um, we've had a very far ranging conversation. So I think we've covered almost everything. I would just say stoicism is all about connection. And I would encourage everyone, you know, if you're sitting at home listening to reach out to the other people around you and try to grow closer to others. We've all been through a very rough two years with the pandemic and social distancing. So let's try to shrink those distances now that we're able to, and always remember that we do grow and make meaning in our lives based on our relationships with other people. So that would be my parting advice. Uh, exquisite advice. And I'll just echo that very briefly. I think from this conversation, I'll take away many things, uh, but chief among them, the idea of sociability as uh, fundamental to the human condition and Stoicism's emphasis on sociability. I think it's a grave misconception that uh, the Stoic man or Stoic woman is a recluse, is someone whose head is buried in books all day long uh, and is uh, thinking of abstract thoughts and great ethical ideals that will never be achieved here on earth. Uh, so that would be the one thing. And the, the second thing would be this sense of meaning. Uh, of course, we discussed Frankel's um, celebrated work, Man's Search for Meaning. Um, and I think you fleshed that out brilliantly. And I think that's something um, with which we can all walk away uh, better people. So again, Brittany, a thousand thanks for your agreeing to join me today. I'll include links to all of your writings, all of your books on Amazon, uh, your your um, your organizations uh, on which you serve as a board member, and everything else. Is there perhaps a, a social media presence that you'd like to tell people about? Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of the above? Sure, you can follow me on Twitter at Brittany Pollatt. I'm pretty easy to find. Um, and please do follow Stoic Care. We are trying to build our nonprofit and we have lots of great events coming up. Some things you might not have thought about before like Stoicism and compassion and Stoicism and animal care. So please do check us out. And Daniel, thank you so much for the invitation. I've enjoyed our conversation so much. So thank you. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. And to all of you out there, farewell from Finner Wake. Shout, Daniel. Shout, leave a shout, Daniel. Shout, tell you, shout.